Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission, and this is the Arts Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Uh, the Arts Hour is a co-production of the Mississippi Public Broadcasting and the Arts Commission. Kevin Farrell, our fearless producer and leader here, be secret, uh, the silent hand behind the boards with us today. Uh, so each week we come to you with a different in-depth discussion with a different creative Mississippian. Uh, we talk to pe- uh, artists, musicians, craftspeople, people who help promote the arts in their community. We have a very special guest today, uh, Michael Ford. He's got a brand new book out called North Mississippi Home Place. It's a, a collection of uh, photographs and essays about his time uh, documenting rural folk culture of North Mississippi back in the early 1970s. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, pleasure. It's good to be back. Well, you've got a great new book. It comes out of a lot of work that you did here in the early 1970s in uh, Mississippi. Uh, but you're not a native. Uh, you came from up north. And I was hoping you'd just talk a little bit about how, you know, how, how did you get here originally to, to do this work? Oh, by accident. Yeah. Um, I had been I had been living in Rochester, New York, and decided I needed to get a master's degree because I wanted to teach. Which didn't happen, but that's okay. And I, we had gone to I'd gone to Boston University. At the same time, my wife's folks, who had been at University of Rochester, Doctor Doctor Fox, got a job as the chairman of the mechanical engineering department at Ole Miss. And in Christmas, nineteen seventy one. Uh, Janice told me, uh, we're going to Mississippi for Christmas. And I said, we're driving in a red Volkswagen bus with New York plates and a peace sign to Mississippi. I wasn't all that sure about it. Matter of fact, I was not sure at all, really. I very strongly not sure. And, uh, came down and, uh, my engine had blown up. And a friend of Dr. Fox's was helping me at night rebuild the engine. During the day, I was sitting around with absolutely nothing to do, bored out of my mind. It was before the advent of cable television, of course. And a friend of mine said, well, do you want to go for a ride out in the country? And I said, absolutely, just to get out of the house. And it was first frost, which I found out later on. I had witnessed it, but I found out first frost is hog killing time. And as we drove out north of Sardis along 310, uh, people were dragging these huge cast iron kettles out and putting the single trees up in the trees to uh, gut the hogs. And I didn't have a camera. I'd gone to RIT and I'd studied history and aesthetics of photography uh, under Beaumont Newhall, which is kind of like getting drawing 101 taught by Picasso. And uh, he had taken out all the FSA photographers, Eudora Welty, Gordon Parks, Dorothea Lang, uh, Russell Lee, all those people. And suddenly in front of me, live and in color, was the FSA. I felt like I had dropped back to the 1930s, 1920s, maybe even the 1880s. I had never seen anything like this. I had no idea that could exist in America of 1972. And part of me said, if I didn't do something about it, I'd regret it forever. So in the space of just a couple of days, 
I decided to move on a, shall we say, an inspired whim. And uh, with the second time in three months, we moved from Rochester to Boston, Boston to Mississippi. And uh, I uh, came down here and had no idea what I was going to do. I wasn't a folklorist. I wasn't an anthropologist. I wasn't an ethnomusicologist. Matter of fact, it uh, took about 20 years to find out that after I had been an apprentice to Mr. Hall, that I was a material a participant observer in a material folk process. Oh, congratulations. Uh, I, <laughs> oh, that's okay. I didn't know it was happening at the time. <laughs> And, uh, you know, sometimes, whatever you'd like to call it, fate, God, kismet, whatever, predestination, I don't know what to call it, but sometimes you're sent to a place you need to be in spite of yourself. And uh, I wound, uh, somebody told me there was an old-timey blacksmith just off the square, and I went down and met Mr. Hall and started talking to him, and uh, I got my first lesson as a blacksmith. Would you like to hear what it was? Yeah, well, tell us a little about Mr. Hall, kind of his background, and he was kind of a lifer in that in that field. Oh, past lifer. He was he, he was total one hundred percent in and out blacksmith. Uh, I found out after I moved to Washington and I joined the Blacksmith Guild of the Potomac that all the smiths up there, some two hundred smiths, we have a forge that's set at about nineteen hundred coal forges, no hydraulics, no lasers, no. Anything else? Everything is by hand, human power. Uh, that everybody was making stuff, and I didn't make anything. I fixed stuff, and I realized I was a 19th-century agricultural blacksmith. One of the things about a middle buster is, if you're going to sharpen a middle buster, it has to the tip has to be kind of curved and cupped, otherwise it either buries itself in the earth or it skips across the surface. It has to be just right. And that's an old kind of plow, like a mule-drawn type plow, correct? Or? Uh, yes. Middle, okay. middle Buster had two uh, mold boards, so the earth was spread on both sides. It was what you used for breaking virgin ground or fallow ground that had been all tied up with Johnson grass, and it ripped open a hole in, in hard earth. Then after that, you could do it with a turning plow after you had, had uh, used worked the field for a while and the soil was loosened, then you'd, you'd use a one mold board, and that would be a turning plow, and it would, it would uh, move the earth to one side. So Mr. Hall, this was, this was his, these were his type of things that he was working on. As I say, it was where I needed to be because the people who came to him were the people who were still farming in the old-timey way, the people who were still mu using mules. And as long as Mr. Hall was there, he provided them with their infrastructure that it could keep going on. When he left, you either got a tractor or you quit. And most of what I've learned is absolutely irrelevant in the 21st century. But, you know, that's okay. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Michael Ford. He's got a new book out of his photographs from the early 1970s North Mississippi called North Mississippi Home Place. So when you went to—you were an absolute beginner when you walked into his, his shop, I guess— my first lesson was we were talking, and at some point he said, Mike, he said, young fella, would you mind picking up that piece of metal for me? And as I reached down for it, he said, you might want to spit on it, see if it's hot. And that was my first lesson. And then after that, he said, would you mind holding this piece of metal on the anvil while I give it a lick? And at that time, being kind of Yankee-ish, I would have said something like, yeah, sure, not a problem, where six months later I'd say, yes, sir, be glad to. 
And he taught me how to sit on my heels. He taught me how to talk to folks. Uh, and I learned, you know, I, I know all about mule tack because to repair the stuff, you have to know how it works in order to fix it. So um, my blacksmithing is full of all sorts of, as I say, totally useless information in the 21st century. So was this a full-time thing, or were you doing other work at the time? Uh, yeah. Uh, I wound up uh, digging ditches. I did concrete form work on the old Benbow Inn uh, in Oxford, which has been since torn down, which shows you how long your monuments stand. Uh, painted houses. Used to uh, get hired, since I was, in theory, a filmmaker, I used to carry uh, these films around, these kid films around to all the local cinemas in Bahalia or uh, Potts Camp or someplace like that and go to the local cinema and uh, deliver it to the guy and sell tickets. And, you know, they, they would, these people would rent out the theater to show their, their uh, films. So it was an ancient form of Netflix. <laughs> or, or Redbox. You're like kind of bringing the, yeah. the, the mm -hmm. DVD to them. Um, and from what I gather from the book, uh, being a Mr. Hall shop kind of like gave you introduction to people from not just Oxford, but kind of the, all the surrounding communities. People used to come from Marshall County, Tate County, uh, from all over if they needed something done. Uh, and I met uh, Doc James up at Hal Waldrop's store in Chulahoma, which was the hadn't changed since the 1920s or the 1930s, and Hal Waldrop knew what he had and preserved it as it was. He was consciously keeping Chulahoma alive, and one of his clients was Doc James, who so, who grew sorghum in the bottom uh, south of Chulahoma, uh, out Tyro Road, and his a molasses maker was A.G. Newsom. A.G. Newsom brought his evaporating pan to Mr. Hall. It's a Mississippi thing. You know, it's a kind of a closed loop. Everything is interconnected. And um, Mr. Hall and I patched it. We'd fill up the pan with water and would find the drips. I'd stick a straw up through it. Mr. Hall would get his soldering iron, big copper soldering irons with no wires attached to them, heat them up in the forge, and then he'd put the lead solder onto uh, the evaporating pan. And when A.G. came back to pick up his pan, I said, so what are you, what are you going to be doing with this? And he said, well, I'm going to be making molasses for Doc James. I said, I know Doc James. And I asked him if I could come up and film it. And they think the reason he did it wasn't because I was some sort of filmmaker or whatever. It was because I was Mr. Hall's apprentice. And if I was Mr. Hall's apprentice, I had to be okay. And so he allowed me to come up and film them making molasses and... Um, you know, you don't know at the time, but evidently a lot of the stuff that I got turned out to be uh, rather unique. David, uh, I, uh, for instance, I filmed uh, Napoleon Strickland playing a guitar. Dave Evans, the blues author authority uh, up in Memphis, when I showed him the footage, told me he didn't know that... Uh, Napoleon ever played guitar. Ever he was known for his fife and his harmonica, and uh, it turns out that evidently I shot the only sync sound footage of Napoleon playing a guitar. Mm. And of course, the folks at the American Folklife Center of the Library of Congress are 
quite enamored of it. Like I say, I wasn't an ethnomusicologist. I wasn't a right. folklorist. And it wasn't until the, the uh, library and the Folklife Center got a hold of the stuff that they started telling me what I had, which yeah. is, you know, interesting. And your approach, yeah, so there was a lot of people kind of documenting in the area. You, meant, you mentioned David Evans, and, of course, William Ferris was kind of in the region as yeah. well around mm-hmm. the same times. But, it, I, I mean, another one that comes to mind is uh, when we're introduced to Other Turner, it's Other Turner the Farmer. I mean, later we see him as, you know, the Fife Master and with his band mm-hmm. at Gravel Strings, Springs, but the focus that you put on him is as a farmer and you show him with his his mule team and him that's working the field. Yeah, so that that's a unique perspective as well for Arthur Turner, who's primarily seen as a musician in, in history, kind of. Well, they've taken my collection and put it into the special collection of the Library of Congress. I'm I'm wedged between Pete Seeger, Alan Lomax, and Jonathan Cohen. And evidently the reason why is the ethnomusicologists, the Bill Ferris's and so on, and and certainly the Lomax's, uh, focused on performance and the performers. And I shot and filmed that as well, but I also shot their families and their kids and their homes and their, their animals and their fields. And it's in color. Uh, so it fills in a lot of cracks that other people hadn't, because they were looking for music and performance and virtuosity and things like that, not necessarily the context that they were found in. So evidently it's uh, and it's not no planning on my part, mind you, but it, just the way it shook out. Uh, just your interests and you know yeah. what you were focused on, yeah. Well, I approached it as a photographer, documentary filmmaker, not as a, a, some branch of anthropology or cultural discovery. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Michael Ford, and we're talking about his new book, North Mississippi Home Place. Well, Michael, so the the book is a lot of images that you you took in North Mississippi, uh, but you mentioned in the book that these weren't, you know, you didn't take these images to, they were just part of your process. They were not, this was not the final thing. They no. were more, so talk a little bit about kind of their origin and why you were taking these images in addition to your film. Well, in, in this day and age, when you're working in video, you can go to someplace and shoot 400 hours of footage or something like that, which we do sometimes when we go off to Africa. And it's all on SD cards, which cost you 12 bucks a pop. But in the days of 16 millimeter, uh, two and a half minutes of raw film cost you about $15. Then it cost you another 25 or 30 to process it. And then to work print it and to edge number it, by the time you were done, you were talking about $75, $80 for two and a half minutes. So you couldn't do, you couldn't roll like you like you can now. And so I did all my research uh, and all my bridging uh, with still photographs. And I used uh, ectochrome, which was the same emulsion that I would be shooting with the film, so that I had exposure tests and light tests and color balance tests and things like that in the still photograph. But once the film was made, the uh, stills got kind of packed away and pretty much sat for 40 years in various closets of various homes that I lived in. And my daughter, Deirdre, at, kept saying to me, Dad, someday you're going to croak and all the provenance is going to be gone. You need to do something with this stuff. 
And around 2009, there was a convergence of technology where somebody like me could do high-resolution scans and then use something like Lightroom to catalog, tweak, and, and organize material, especially when you're talking thousands of images. Had you looked at the photos at all in the intervening years, or was it kind of like a first time going back to it? Um, I had looked at some of them. I, uh, periodically, I'd look at Mr. Hall or something like that. But what do you do with a slide? You can project it, and you could get some sort of cibachrome print or something like that, or maybe you could try to make an internegative. <coughs> but the quality just wasn't there. And when you could digitize something high resolution, then you had something you could work with. And of course, once you got into the the uh, digital world, you could you could print it, you could email it, you could post it on a website, you could do a whole lot more with it. But as a slide, there's not much you can do. So at the time back at the, back in the day, you would kind of like, for example, the molasses making. So you would kind of go out ahead for the first time and just shoot still images. Well, with molasses, that was a one-time thing. So right. that was a jump in and do it. Okay. With uh, the general store, with uh, Mr. Hall, with a lot of the musicians, uh, I could go in and do my research. And then later on, the photographs became a uh, a bridge to the people. They might not understand why in the world I'd want to do a documentary, but they could look at the photographs and realize that it was okay. And I think I, I, I built a lot of relationships on the strength of the photographs, not who or who I was or what I was trying to do. At that time period? Yeah. Like you had prints made of, of your Well, of your I, I, I no, I'd drag a projector around with oh, me. Oh, okay. You know, or one of the little hand viewers. Okay. That you have a couple of batteries in them. And, yeah. Um, just even if you, you just had a little hand viewer and people could see the pictures of their kids, that, that was enough. And, and periodically we'd do a slideshow up at Mr. Waldrop's store or something like that. You mentioned in the book you talk about the quality of the light in North Mississippi, oh, yeah. the, how, how distinctive it was. Oh, indeed. Still. Still. Um, you, you're familiar with Dutch light, the Vermeers and the, all, of that, all of those folks. Uh, the way they handle light, and of course the, the light, the North Sea light of, of Holland is, is well known. And of course you've heard in filmmaking Golden Hour and that sort of thing. It's kind of like the like the near sunset or what's yeah, the... sunrise the, and sunset. Sun, yeah, mm -hmm. Basically what, the, what happens is since the sun is coming oblique, the, the color temperature of the light lowers and it gets warmer and more golden and more reddish. Uh, usually more saturated as well, and it's the perfect time to do lots of different stuff. And uh, there's also a, a winter light in North Mississippi that I named the Pearl Hour that has a sort of a gray-white lumescent quality that I've I tried to capture. I think I got it a couple of times in the photographs. It's it's real hard to, to catch. It's trying to, like, catch the green flash at sea, you know? This is at sunset as well, or? Um, Pearl Hour seemed to be a little bit before sunset when it just started. And as they say in winter, kind of was, had a sort of a purplish hue to it as well. 
You mentioned uh, earlier you were talking about Waldrop Store and Chulahoma. Now, Chulahoma people, uh, Chulahoma is now probably best known as the place uh, for uh, the site of Junior Kimbrough's juke joint that was yeah. famous probably 20 years after you were there. But at your time, you you had a different experience there at Chulahoma. Chula, yes. We, we One of the first things I did, since I didn't know what I was doing, we got a hold of a bunch of taupe sheets and started just driving around throughout North Mississippi. Topographic maps? Is that yes. what you're saying? Okay, yeah. Uh, just going down every dirt road, pretty much, and looking, taking notes, taking photographs. And slowly but surely, we began to center in on people and places that seemed to be exceptionally receptive. Hal Waldrop ran the store in Chulahoma, and first time we stopped, we usually would stop for a cold drink or maybe get some gas, say hello to people. And Hal Waldrop engaged us immediately. And after 15 minutes, it was beginning to feel quite homey. And I, I think uh, he was also maybe hungry for a little certain kind of conversation. And uh, it, it just turned out to be a, uh, a good relationship, both with Hal and with the town and the people. It, it uh, we started hanging out, and we got to know everybody in the neighborhood, got to know their names, got to know their kids, they got to know us, and it just it just got opener and opener and opener, and we went deeper and deeper into people's lives and what they did and how they did it. What kind of things did he kind of teach you about the community? Well, he taught me about the community, of course, but he taught him taught me about himself as part of the community. The store had been there since, I guess, the 1920s. He had come during the Depression. when He, he told me that uh, during the Depression, nobody in the area had noticed the Depression because they'd already been pounded flat so much that it didn't make any difference. He used to take me riding at sunset and dusk out along the ridges that are up in North Mississippi. Uh, I'd be on an old mare, which is the only thing I would put my body on, and uh, the stars would be a bowl above us, and the bird song would be echoing from ridge to ridge. It was an amazing, beautiful place to be, and we'd talk. and He would. He told me that uh, he believed it was that it was that time in Mississippi, and he would say, uh, "Well, I believe I need to rethink everything I think I know." And there was a because he saw the times changing and kind of things. There was Changing. a phrase people used back then that, you know, in these book readings that I've been doing, I ask people if they remember it. A lot of the older folks do. None of the younger people have ever heard it. People were saying back in 71, well, it ain't a white thing or a black thing. It's a green thing. It meant that the real issue was, was money and progress. The most uh, ardent segregationist realized there wasn't going to be a Nissan plant in a segregated society and that change was coming. And I think a lot of people just thought that with the sort of the stress and tension and some of the things that were going on previous, that it just wasn't Mississippi. It wasn't who they were. It wasn't who the people were. And they accepted change. And coming back, I think I see the change. It's, it's pronounced. It's, yeah. it's people made their peace with each other. You're listening to the Arts Hour on MPB. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Michael Ford, and we're talking about his new book, North Mississippi Home Place. 
Um, so in terms of working on this film, you know, back in that time period, just talk a little bit. Was this kind of fits and starts, like you would get some money and do something, or how did that work? Uh, fit, lots of fits and a few starts. When we got when I got money, like I say, I painted houses, get a few bucks, and get some work print. It took five years to make, and it's one of the things that marked my life. Making that film took five years, and at the end of it, I thought, well, it'd be a lot easier if I owned the equipment, and that started Yellow Cat. Or actually, Yellow Cat started at 1538 Jackson Avenue in Oxford, which was a block off the square, and I know people in Oxford would be shocked to think I paid $125 a month for a place a block off the square, but that's what it cost. And uh, in those days, as a filmmaker, you did it all yourself. So I, I wrote the film. I, I guess I directed it. I certainly shot it. I edited it. I even did the A-B roles. And most filmmakers would go have somebody who was conf called conforming the film. You edited a work print, and your original stayed intact. And then you conformed the original to the work print. So and then the, it was the the original that was then printed into the release prints, and it was a very specialized. And of course, you screw up, you do a wrong cut, and suddenly your film doesn't work because it doesn't match the work print. It's a no mistakes process. I had to do my own because there just wasn't any money. Uh, it also started a, a stream of other. Almost everything that we've done, all our independent films, have turned out to have sort of an ethnographic base, not out of design or desire, but simply because that's what happened. And I think a lot of that has to do with the original piece of work that we did with Home Place. What, so when you got it finished, what, um, what hap where did you take it? Where was it shown? What was its kind of initial life? Well, uh, one place it uh, played was here at uh, Mississippi Public Broadcasting back in, in uh, 75 or 6. Also, uh, they did Juke here. It was a documentary we made on Model T Ford back in the 90s. And uh, the film also was played in Europe. Um, the Swedes used it, it played on German. The Europeans, of course, love blues, and they're, they're enchanted and, and uh, captured by the whole Mississippi gestalt. Uh, even today, people... Amsterdam is full of blues lovers. Japan is full of blues lovers. The tourists that come here from all over the world to, to do the blues trail and, and to hear and see and experience Mississippi. So it, it actually got more play overseas than it did in the United States, but it played around and it won a few awards and uh, was kind of the first big thing that I had ever done. And probably one of the, you also mentioned a, a a fairly notable for you uh, showing of the film when you brought it back to to one of the communities. Well, as I said, Hal Waldrip uh, said that he thought he had to rethink everything he thought he knew. And uh, in those days, given as I said the cost of doing things, you couldn't do things. You could you couldn't sit around like we do now and just roll and roll and roll and roll. You had to set up something that was equivalent to reality, that was representation of reality, but you couldn't afford to just let things go uncontrolled. So we would set up sort of equivalent scenes. 
And one of the scenes that we came up with was uh, with Hal, and we said, well, we, we needed a, cus- a customer interaction with you. And he said, okay. About that time, Roman Jones came into the store, and, we, and Roman was a really good-hearted guy who was liked fun. And we said, hey, Roman, you want to be in the movie? He said, I do. I said, okay. Uh, he said, what do you want me to do? I said, well, we'll do it impromptu. We wanted some kind of reality going on. You just come in and you'll buy something. He said, okay. So we set it up. We rolled film, and uh, he walked in. Hal said, Roman, I ain't seen you for a while. Well, I've been up on the lake. And they went bantering back and forth. And Hal said, what, what you want? He said, I'll have a slice of bologna. So Hal got out a big roll of bologna. You remember how the hoop cheese used to sit on the counter and all that? He sliced off a big uh, chunk of bologna and uh, said to uh, Roman, what you want to drink? I'll have a Pepsi drink. Hal walks back around the counter and comes to the cooler. Now, in those days, there weren't any radio mics or something, so we had these beat-up old shotgun mics pointed in the general direction, and you hoped you got some halfway decent sound. And as Hal was walking away from the camera with his back, he said something that was kind of garbled, and, you know, when I was editing it, I figured, okay, I'll just cut this out because it's almost just noise. Cut the film, and then about two years later, when I got from my first answer print, uh... We were down for Christmas again, and I grabbed a projector and a sheet and my first answer print, which I shouldn't have projected, but I was going to. I took it back up to the store to show folks, and we put the sheet down the middle of the store. Half the people were watching the thing backwards, and uh, but nobody cared, and the film rolled, and uh, we began to see the kudzu, and the, the, oh, of course, all the roads were unpaved in those days, and there was a little bit of, lots of chatter going on, and people were you know, talking about stuff and making comments. And uh, as we got closer and closer to Chulahoma, the volume and the excitement kind of came up. The store hit, and it, it kind of raised up a couple of little levels. The scene with uh, Hal and, and, and Roman came by. Now, in the scene, there's a step stool behind Roman, and he's standing at the counter, and, and, and uh, Hal was behind the counter, and Roman kind of pushes the step stool behind him. Well, after, you know, uh, Hal comes around, puts the Pepsi down on the counter, and Roman pulls the step stool up and sits down. That's when the place went nuts. And I came to find out that it was the first time that a black man had been served at the counter. People used to eat in the back. They'd get a can of Vienna sausage or sardines or whatever and go eat it by the, the old stove on the benches there or out on the porch. But this was the first time, and it, what it said to me was when Hal Waldrop decided that his store was going to be recorded, mem- memorialized in a sense, it was going to be the place where a black man was welcome to come and sit down. Mm. And so he had rethought everything he thought he knew. Mr. Hall used to tell me, Michael, everybody's come to realize they just got to love one another. That's the only thing we got to do is just love one another and not worry about the rest of it. And that seemed to be, that's what I found. I, as I say in the book, I know there were hard faces around me somewhere, but I never saw them. Uh, maybe because they turned from us when they saw the camera and saw the Yankees and all the, you know, the Yankee me and all the rest of that. But um, the people who smiled at us and said, what you boys doing? What you up to? Oh, you ought to go speak. My guides were the people I was working with, the people I met who told me where to go and who to talk to and that I ought to see this or I ought to find out that. or um, it, 
I couldn't have done the film without the absolute cooperation and involvement of the people who were in it. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back for our final segment on the Arts Hour today. Uh, we're talking with Michael Ford, and his new book is North Mississippi Home Place. Um, now, you, we, we talked, you mentioned a little bit about kind of your return. You came after years of kind of working all over with your, with your company. You came back to Mississippi in the early, what, 2013 or 2013. so? to and, and kind of revisited some of these places. What, what, what did, and then that's included in the book as well. What prompted that was, I, I, as I say, my daughter talked me into organizing the stuff and digitizing it, and then it wound up with the uh, Library of Congress. And at one point, I was listening to, I was doing transcripts of Mr. Hall. He told me one time, Michael, it ain't what's in a man that defines him. It's what he lets out. And I got soppy, and I thought, well, 21st century, I'll Google his name. Perhaps I can find a, an obituary or, or something like that. And what I came up with was an Oxford Eagle article from 1995 about a blacksmith who's still there, Andy Waller, he's out towards College Hill, who had been Mr. Hall's apprentice. I didn't know Andy existed. I knew Billy Lester, Bill Lester, as he's known around. Uh, that's another story. But uh, I knew Billy, and uh, I didn't know... Andy. I didn't even know he existed. And the article said that uh, Andy had Mr. Hall's anvil. Well, I have Mr. Hall talking about how he got that anvil at 1919 as he was coming back from shoeing mules in Texas for the Army during World War I. Somebody stole his anvil, and he bought this new anvil. And he had had the anvil for, you know, going on 60 years, and now 40 years later, so now suddenly there's 100 years to this anvil. So I called Andy. He's not a cyber guy. Uh, I found his phone number, and I called him up. Didn't say who I was. I said, is this Andy Waller? He said, it is. I said, I understand you have Mr. Hall's anvil. He said, I do. I said, well, I stood over that anvil for many an hour. He said, you must be Michael. I have tools from Mr. Hall for you. Oh, wow. He had, handled, he had held those tools for 40 years. So, of so course. So he, he, he inherited or t bought out Mr. Hall's shop, whole yeah. shop? Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so, of course, I had to go back. And if I was going back, I brought a crew with me. So Albert and, and uh, Lou and I came, came back and uh, did a, a piece you can see on the Vimeo, uh, the blacksmith of Oxford, piece with Mr. Hall and the, us three old fuddy-duddies uh, talking about uh, working for him and what he had done for us. He shaped all three of us for the rest of our lives. He was so wise and, and gentle. Turned out he had this way of, of, of teaching. I'd be doing something, you know, grinding or something. He'd say, you know, Michael, I used to know a fella that did it that way. And it took me a couple of months to realize that the proper response was, and what happened to him, Mr. Hall? Well, he put his eye out. How should I be doing this, Mr. Hall? <laughs> Never stop that, but just always indirect, huh? Yeah. yeah, just gentle, just yeah. gentle. He's not going to, you know, as a, you know, probably a Yankee Smith would have said, hey, nitwit, you know, what are you doing? Um, but not Mr. Hall. Mr. That was not in Mr. Hall's makeup. I never saw him stumped. Um, if things went absolutely bad, 
if uh, something got burned up or we went and quenched something and it cracked or something like that and we saw two or three days' work disappear, uh, he'd just pause for a little while and say, I hate that. I myself would have been using some of the vocabulary I had learned from various bosun mates in the U.S. Navy. But uh, I hate that was all he would come up with. I learned a lot from him. I learned an amazing amount from him. Shaped my life. And you've continued to do blacksmith as, as, as a kind of a hobby? or how, 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 Tell me about how you've continued on with that. Well, did I, did I tell you when I, about joining the Blacksmith Guild? No. Well, I joined the Blacksmith Guild of the Potomac. It's got about, uh, we have our, our forge in a nature center. It's set at about 1900, which is kind of equivalent to Mr. Hall's. We had electricity, which Mr. Hall had, but we don't have any hydraulics or lasers oh, or right. power mm-hmm. stuff yeah. like Mr. Hall's. And when I got there, I realized all these guys are making stuff. And it's, they're doing, uh, some of the people are making, we have a Ukrainian guy who's making museum quality uh, 8th century Eastern European weaponry. We have people who are making Damascus steel, making tools, doing fine art sculpture, mobiles, all sorts of things. I realized Mr. I was a 19th century agricultural blacksmith. Uh, Mr. Hall, that's what Mr. Hall was, and so that's what I was. So did you then, how, how did you proceed then on your own? Well, I, I'm a member of the guild, and I, I go out. There's not I, many plows to fix in Maryland, I would imagine, these no, days. No, but you know what? Part of the essence, um, in time, I've also become a silversmith and a coppersmith. I, I do raising and make copper vessels, and I do silver jewelry. I'm making some West African bracelets that are icebreakers when I go over there. And... Uh, when I'm doing copper or silver, I'll need a certain stake, which is what you hammer on to make the shapes come out the way. In. And if you're doing a certain shape, you need a certain shape stake, which is made out of steel. Well, all the other coppersmiths and all the other silversmiths, when they need something, they kind of go around and see what they can do. I make one. And as a blacksmith, you're used to making your tools. Uh, and, well, right now, for instance, I'm making a steel heron with a 44-inch wingspan, and I'm using a lot of uh, repoussé and other techniques that are for coppersmiths or silversmiths. So it, it kind of, it kind of I, you know, I'm more like a metalsmith now, but I'm, I'm still using hammers, and I'm still using fire, and I'm still using metal. Doing different things. I'm making uh, mobiles now, and I make tools from working the other stuff. And uh, we're also, we're taking a group of, uh, we take uh, jewelers and coppersmiths over to the blacksmith forge to teach them how to make chasing tools and teach them how to use steel. That's awesome. We're Great talking fun. With, we're, we're talking with Michael Ford about his new book, North Mississippi Home Place. And so you're kind of on a, kind of a return trip. You're, you're going all throughout Mississippi mm-hmm. this week, kind of talking about your book. Have you Coming back, too. Yeah. How, how was... Uh, so have you had any interactions with some of the old home folks uh, since you've been back this time? Or Well, what's interesting, and, and I think what marks uh, Doc James, A.G. Newsom, who were the people who are featured in the book and the film, uh, both their daughters, both of them have granddaughters who have Ph.D.s. And uh, 
A.G. Newsom's daughter came to the Library of Congress, and when she saw her grandfather up on the wall, she cried. And then I cried, and then we all cried. Um, Hal Waldrop's granddaughter flew to Oxford from Texas to come see me. Uh, just of, of, of all, all of the children and grandchildren of, of the people who were in the book found me. I didn't find them. But somebody say, hey, I saw your granddaddy in this film on blah, blah, blah. And the next thing you know, I'm getting an email from somebody saying, uh, you filmed my granddaddy or you filmed my dad. Or... And, and so, yes, the connections have, have, have been renewed. Um, and, uh, w well, I was up in, you, you know how Square Books used to be Baylock's Drugs in Oxford? I've heard that it was a drugstore. I never saw it myself. Yeah, it was Baylock's yeah. Drugs. And when I was in Memphis... I was signing books, and uh, man said uh, his last name was Baylock. And I said, "Are you?" He said, "Yes." He was the son of Baylock's drug, and he t he had been to see he knew Mr. Hall when he was a little boy. And it's amazing how many re connections have occurred with people who knew Mr. Hall or knew any of the other people, Hal Waldrop, or knew the store, or. Yeah, there's still memories. There's still memories out there that uh, are coming alive a little bit. That's great. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming in today. Um, we want to point everybody, of course, to your book, North Mississippi Home Place. Um, there is, uh, yes, you, uh, you said the interstitials are on, on Vimeo. And is that under your company's name, Yellow Cat? Or who, who, uh, you where can, would they search for that? You can get to uh, go to Vimeo and type in North Mississippi Home Place. And you'll see the original documentary and uh, some eight, seven or eight pieces. We're still working on more pieces, which we can add, uh, including piece on uh, Mule Man Massey and mules, people in mules and making molasses. And there's a, a piece with Compton Jones who used to play the, play the tub and whistle, which uh, I thought was you know, it was a sort of a standalone piece. It didn't really connect to other parts of the film, like the store or Mr. Hall. But doing a nonlinear documentary can be a standalone piece. Well, Scott Beretta put it up on his uh, Facebook page, and it's had 4,000 hits in about two days. Wow, that's, yeah, that shows the power of the, those images, really, for sure. Yeah. I, well, it, it, it kind of makes you humble. <laughs> and to see that that still has relevance all those years later, you know, these things that sat in your sat in your storage for many years. Yeah, contrary to what most people do, which has a half life of thirty seconds after it's aired, this stuff I think is has got some stay in power. Well, thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate it, and I hope everybody goes out and checks your new book out and and those documentaries. Um, for those of you tuning in late and maybe you'd like to share the show with a friend or go back and listen to the whole show, you can go to the MPB website at mpbonline.org, and they post all our past shows as streaming files. You can also find the show as a podcast and uh, use that MPB Online app on your phone to listen to it or anything else on MPB. Until the next, until next time here on the Arts Hour, we'll be seeing you around. <laughs>